Well, I don't think I could have picked a better story this week than our gospel reading from Matthew 15, the story of the Canaanites, uh, the faith of the Canaanite woman. I don't pick most of the time the gospel selections that I preach on. As most of you know, we use the common lectionary. Many churches uh, throughout the world, throughout the country, are preaching this same gospel reading. And I say that because of in light of what's been going on in our city and in the city of Ferguson. We've all followed what's happening there. Uh, that this story in the gospel has something to say about what's happening in our world today because this story is about race and about racial tension. And the question is, as, as Christians, as we look at the news and what's happening in, in our own backyard, so to speak, what does the Christian message have to say on issues like this? What does the gospel have to say? What resources does the gospel bring to bear on issues like the racial division and the racial tension that we see, even um, playing out on our TV screens in our own um, neighborhoods? Well, this story is significant because it reminds us that membership in the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in, is not based on race, it's based on grace, grace and faith. Uh, one pastor who is concerned with multicultural ministry has coined this term, gracism. That's what we should be about as Christians, gracism. And we should resist uh, racism and promote unity. As Christians, we should be at the forefront of that. And I've been happy to see that that, I think, is happening in Ferguson. Ministers are there on the ground, um, walking among the people, praying with the people, and trying to lead the efforts towards reconciliation and peace. The church should be doing that and at the forefront of that. So the, the, the story of the Canaanite woman teaches us that the kingdom of God includes people of all different races, but it takes a while to get there in this story. It's kind of an uncomfortable story at the beginning, at least, and on the surface. Um, because what we see at the beginning, what we feel is really this racial tension between the Jews and uh, Jesus and the disciples who are Jews and this Canaanite woman. Now, you know your Bible, you know the history between the Canaanites and the Israelites. It was in the land of Canaan that the people of uh, Israel were called to, to go and to possess. And there was war over the land between the Canaanites and the people of Israel, ongoing war. And then there was the religious divisions. The Canaanites were pagans. They were idolaters. And God was always telling the people of Israel, stay away from the Canaanites. Don't intermarry with the Canaanites. And so there's all this history there. As Jesus meets this Canaanite woman, it would be like today, I think, um, a very similar uh, analogy would be, or situation rather, would be uh, if Jesus went to Palestine today and crossed the, into Palestinian territory. That, that sort of tension, religious, political, is right here in this episode. Jesus withdraws from, uh, he's been in Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel, north of Jerusalem, and he goes a little bit further into this district, Tyre and Sidon, which were seaports uh, on the Mediterranean Sea, Gentile territory. 
He withdraws because the previous section explains this, that he is in great conflict with the Jewish religious leaders, and things are heating up between him and the Jewish religious leaders. And Jesus is very strategic. He knows that this conflict between him and the Jewish religious leaders who are rejecting him are going to heat up to the point where it leads to the cross. But the time is not right. The time is not right. So he withdraws to sort of ease that tension. And he goes to Tyre and Sidon. Matthew, or Mark, rather, Mark chapter 7 has this story and tells us that he actually stayed in a house there in this region. So maybe he knew somebody in this region. Maybe he, as a carpenter, had done business in that region before. At any rate, that's where he's at. He's in Gentile territory. And this, all of a sudden, the Canaanite woman comes and approaches him. She finds out where he's at. And she cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. I want you to uh, just notice the reactions that are in this story. First of all, Jesus doesn't say anything to her. That's curious. Does he not care? Is he giving her the silent treatment? I think what is happening here and throughout this story is this woman has expressed faith in Jesus, and he's going to draw out even greater faith. Do you know sometimes when God is silent, that's what he's doing with us? You've experienced that in your life? Gone through seasons where God is not speaking. God is silent. Your prayers bounce off the ceiling. I think sometimes what he's doing there is he's stretching our faith, wanting us to press in further, and, and to, to lay claim to the promises of God in the midst of silence. So I think that's what's happening. I think he's not um, trying to put her off, but he's calling her to express her faith in even greater terms. But the disciples, look at them. Jesus, please get rid of her. It's like my kids when my, they're fighting or one of them's whining. Please, mom and dad, send them to the room. I don't want to hear this anymore. <laughs> They're annoyed. And, and the racial issue is, is present here. Not just annoyed because she's begging and persisting, but because I think of who she is, a Canaanite. What place does a Canaanite have in the kingdom of God? That would be the question the disciples are wrestling with. That would be the question that the original readers of this text would be wrestling with because Matthew was writing to first century Jewish Christians. Send her away, for she's crying out after us. Before we're too hard on the disciples, let's ask ourselves, do we ever feel that way about certain groups of people? We'd rather that they just stay away. When Matt Walter was here from the Tampa Bay Muslim Outreach, he said one of the problems in the churches in reaching Muslims is that we are afraid. And we want to keep them at arm's length rather than trying to befriend them. And so I think we can relate to this impulse of the disciples. Jesus, or the disciples rather, say send her away. But Jesus says to her when he finally does speak, he says this. And this sounds exclusive and and kind of discriminatory here. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the point that he's making to this woman is obvious. You're a Gentile woman. Um, but my ministry, my priorities is to my people, the Jews, 
They're spiritually lost. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So God has sent me. You're right. I am the Messiah. I'm the son of David. That's amazing that she recognized that. The Jewish leaders didn't recognize it. But this Gentile woman sees it. But he says, my priority right now is to Israel, to the covenant people. And that raises a question for us. Does God play favorites? Is God in the business of discrimination here? Well, don't we know the verse, so we all know the verse, John 3, 16, For God so loved the whole world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. So there's this universal emphasis in the gospel. The whole world, whosoever. But here Jesus says, I was sent only to the people of Israel. What's going on here? Well, what we see in the Bible is that God's love, yes, it is universal, but it starts particular. He doesn't love the world in the abstract. He starts with a family, the family of Abraham. He 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 establishes a covenant relationship with Abraham who becomes the father of the Jewish nation. And, And this covenant, this promise, is for Abraham's descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the nation of Israel. And then he's specially concerned with the line of David and the Messiah who comes from the line of David. And so God's attention in dealing with the world, the way his salvation unfolds, it unfolds in a very particular way to this line, to this family. Because he doesn't love in the abstract. He loves in the particulars. It's like that in our life, isn't it? That we learn love in family for for good or ill, the good lessons and the bad lessons about love. We learn it in family. We don't love people in the abstract. We learn to love by dealing with real people in real time, in real space. I don't love the idea of my wife, Josie. I have to love Josie. I get to love. I should put it that way. I get to love Josie. Love operates in the particulars. God operates in the particulars. We don't get to know God by sitting under a tree trying to enlighten ourselves and get in touch with the universal spirit. We get to know God, the God of the Bible at least, the true God, by getting to know this family, by being connected to this family, because God has dealt with this people in a special way. But then, yes, after the particular and after he demonstrates his love in particular ways and reveals his character in particular ways to particular people, then he opens up and it becomes universal. And by the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus, after he's accomplished his mission, after he has presented himself as the sacrifice for the whole world and been raised to life, the resurrection, he says to his disciples, now go into all the world. Start with Jerusalem, but then go into all the world. Salvation is first to the Jews, but then to the Gentiles. Okay, so Jesus says this to the woman, and this woman is a, I mean, this woman is a model of spiritual persistence. Because then he says something that even sounds more harsh. He says something about dogs, doesn't he? He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ooh. Now, I think some of the sting is taken out of this when we uh, realize that Jesus, when he 
he's using this term dog, he's talking about a family pet. He's not talking about wild scavenging dogs, mutts. <laughs> he's talking about the kind of dogs that you guys have in your home, beloved dogs, members of the family. But they don't have priority over children. But you still love them and care about them. So I don't think Jesus is demeaning her when he says this, but he is asking her to accept her place in the divine plan. Children first. And she doesn't even take Jesus' words as an insult. She's very quick to her feet, this lady is. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs, even those family pets, get scraps under the table. The master permits them to eat the crumbs. In other words, I recognize your primary mission is to the children of Israel. But here's what she's saying. I trust that your mercy, she's recognized that he is the son of David. I trust that your mercy will spill over even to people like me. And she comes in that humility and that faith. And that attracts the mercy of Jesus. That draws out the mercy of Jesus like a magnet. When people come to him and they say that, help me, Lord. Then he's going to respond. Woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. She's acknowledged her need for Jesus. And she's put her faith and trust in Jesus. And that's what we're all called to do. But the the lesson of this for the first century reader is, oh my goodness, for the Jewish reader, God's mercy spills over to the Canaanites now through Jesus Christ. This is how wide his mercy is. And they needed to hear that because Gentiles were coming into the church through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. They had to wrestle with that. And they, the, 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 the Jewish believers, were, were being called to engage in this Gentile mission. And, and they're wrestling with their own traditions. What does it mean to be the people of God now? Uh, what had set them apart were traditions that Jesus was in conflict with the rabbis over. Things like washing their hands. That comes right, the, 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 the conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees over ritual washing of hands comes right before this story. And in Matthew and in Mark, and the significance is that that was a Jewish identity marker, the ritual washing of the hands for a certain group of Jews. And Matthew is saying, and Mark is saying, those markers don't matter anymore. We're part of one family. And so those things that identify you as a certain race or ethnicity, and therefore with God's people, those are going to go away through the cross of Jesus Christ. The Gentiles are included. So what are some implications for us today uh, based on this passage, especially in light of what I talked about at the beginning, this week's events? I want to talk just about racism a little bit here, race and the divisions. First of all, I think it's just obvious that racism does not belong in the heart of a Christian. Racism does not belong in the heart of a Christian. What is racism? Here's a definition. Racism is the belief or practice that values one race over another, thinking we're better than the other. And there can be white against black, black against white, white against Arab, Hispanic, on and on it can go. We see it in our world all the time. But I think what has happened to me this week is I've looked at what's happened in the racial tension. And, of course, it's a complex issue. There's so many issues involved in what's going on in our city. But the race issue is at the uh, forefront. And we have to examine our hearts. Is there any sort of residual racism there in my life? 
When I grew up in a small town, I grew up in a small town where there was a clear divide between black and white. Uh, Broadway Street. On one side of Broadway, there was a section there that was primarily African American. And then on the other side of Broadway was where the white people lived. And the, 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 the place where the, the, the African Americans lived was kind of like a self-contained ghetto. It was very poor. Most of the houses there were ramshackled. And we, growing up, associated that with poverty. And rightly or wrongly, we associated it with crime. And so that stereotype developed in my mind, associating people of color with poverty and crime. And it wasn't until I met people who shattered that stereotype, people of color I became friends with as I got older, that that stereotype was, was shattered. And some of that subconscious, it wasn't overt, never explicit. I was taught never to, to think that way about people. But it worked subconsciously, you see. And that was crumbled as I met people and interacted with people. But we have to be aware of how has my upbringing, how does the media shape my perception of people? Does it, does it create sort of a, an impulse towards racist attitudes? And as Christians, we certainly need to examine our hearts and repent of those sort of attitudes. The second thing I think that, 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 that's in, implied in this text and other texts like it in the New Testament is that we as God's people, as Christians, have to really bend over backwards to make people feel welcome who are from a different background in ethnicity and race. Uh, in the Bible, God demonstrates a concern from, for aliens and strangers over and over again. So Leviticus 19, 33-34, listen to this. When a stranger sojourns with you in the land, you shall not do, to, not do wrong to him. You shall treat him as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were once strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. How are you to treat aliens, people of Israel, God is saying? How are you to treat immigrants? You're to include them and not to exclude them, to treat them as you would want to be treated. I think there's a word for us in our situation today. Uh, listen to the passage from Hebrews 13:2 about hospitality to strangers. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. So both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we could point to a couple other places, but we don't have time. God is concerned that His people include strangers immigrants, aliens, those who are different from them, the reason is you were once strangers and aliens. And as Gentiles, that's certainly true for those of us who are Gentiles. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter. You were once strangers and aliens to the people of God, but because of God's mercy, you've been brought into the family. So if we recognize that in our lives, how much more should we be sensitive to those who feel kind of distant from us because of their background or race? As a church, we're a very welcoming church. I'm, I'm preaching things that you already know and you practice well. I'm just reminding us to be sensitive to these things even more. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you were the minority, where you were the stranger in a social setting. Remember one time... I was working in grad school at a telecommunications company, and many of my coworkers there were African-American, and they invited me to go to a birthday party after work. 
And I showed up, and I was the only white person there. I stuck out like a sore thumb. And what was worse, this was a dance party. And here I am, a white boy who doesn't dance well at all. So there were two strikes against me. Uh, uh, my wife still laughs when she thinks about that situation that I was put in. But you know what? Those people welcomed me in. They could tell I was a little uncomfortable. Welcomed me in into their social circle. Thanked me for coming and included me in their social group. I didn't stay very long, but I did feel welcome. But that gave me a sense of what it feels like sometimes to be in that situation as a minority. And when somebody comes to our church or uh, as Christians, any church really should do this. We should go out of our way to welcome them and then get to know them. Finally, I think, not only do we need to make sure that racist attitudes are repented of and cleansed and forgiven and, and, and make the stranger feel welcome, but finally, we need to understand this, that one of the purposes of the mission of Jesus, and we see it right here, is to include people of all different backgrounds and races into the kingdom of God. This is not incidental. Racial unity is not incidental to the mission of, of Jesus. It's there at the forefront. It's at the heart of it. And it fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. We read a couple of them um, this morning. The prophecy of Isaiah is that God's house, his people, his gathering place would be a house of prayer for all nations. And then the Psalm 67 says, let the nations be glad. The people of Israel are singing about this as a nation of Israel, but they're looking forward to the day that all the nations, all people would join together with them in praise to God. These prophecies have been fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus Christ. We sang to him, in Christ now there is no east or west. There's a great family of love, and I'm so glad to be part of that. So glad to be part of the Anglican family where we see this represented in our fellowship and our union with people who are different from us. So as Christians in this city at this time, it's just a good time to pause, reflect, pray for the people of Ferguson, pray for all the different factions that have coalesced around this, and pray that we as a church can be a light in darkness, salt and light to our culture through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to be sensitive to this issue. We thank you that even though we're not worthy to gather even the crumbs under thy table, you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. And you've shown that in our life. And we pray that we would continually be merciful to those who may be distant from you or different from us, but help us to demonstrate the mercy and love of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.